Welcome to the first program of Digging Deeper. This is a new interview show at Amherst Media where we will visit with Amherst and local nearby residents to learn about their lives and go a little bit deeper. This first segment will be aired in two parts, and my guest today is Julius Lester. Julius arrived in Amherst in 1971 to become a professor in the Afro-American Department of UMass. He taught in five different departments over the course of his career there. In 32 years, he, he was a professor at UMass. And a couple of his very popular courses were Blacks and Jews, a Comparative Study, and Social Change in the 1960s, a course that I actually took. Um, Julius has published 43 books, 30 of which are for children and the rest are adult fiction and nonfiction. He also worked for 10 years in St. Johnsbury, Vermont as a lay leader in the synagogue up there. So Julius is someone who doesn't fit into a box. Growing up in the Black South, the son of a minister, he was immersed in that culture, of course, and he played a very significant role in, with his music in the Civil Rights Movement. His first published book by himself, Look Out Whitey, po uh, Black Power Gonna Get Your Mama, explained the philosophy of black power back in, in those days. It was a very, very deep philosophical book. He also aired a radio show in New York City for several years that was quite controversial for exploring some serious issues that were going on back in those days, around 1968 between blacks and Jews in the city. In 1988, Julius published Love Song, Becoming a Jew, which is a memoir that talks about these experiences, um, both in the black community and uh, his experiences in the civil rights work, and then also his longing and then conversion to Judaism. So since then, Julius has worked and lived and breathed the air in both of those communities and walked in those worlds, both those worlds. So that's the introduction. Welcome, Julius. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So nice to have you. I've been preparing myself for this interview and having a wonderful time steeping myself in your writings and your music, the storytelling all the videos that um, I could find. And it dawns on me that now I feel totally immersed in your life, but for the folks who are watching, this will maybe be new to them. So I wanted to start it with your early life and ask you about when you were growing up in the South and in your father's church and in your community, how did all of that inform your spiritual life? Hmm, well, that's a good question. That's a complicated question. Um, well, certainly growing up as a son of a minister, um, I grew up in a household where, um, well, God was like a member of the family. Um, 
my father would talk about things in terms of, you know, doing what God wanted to do. And, um, you know, and, you know, I mean, there was always prayer at every, at every dinner. It wasn't an oppressive kind of atmosphere, though it was a very strict kind of atmosphere. But, but religion and God were talked about the way other people would talk about if you were a jeweler and you would talk about the jewels or whatever the father's job was. He would talk about, well, that was my father's job, was religion. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I grew up very comfortable with religion and grew up, you know, grew up going to church. Um, black ministers uh, love to tell stories. And so I had the, the pleasure of being around black ministers and they would start telling jokes and telling stories. And so certainly the, 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 the storytelling aspect of me comes from, you know, from that listening to my father and his friends, you know, as well as, as, well as um, my father's preaching. He was a very, very good preacher. And so my sense of language and especially the music of language, mm-hmm. you know, comes from, comes from that. Um, and then, you know, from uh, those days, I mean, I was born in 1939, and we lived in Kansas City. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, I, I lived under segregation, racial segregation, um, until I moved to New York in 1961. And so I grew up in a world that was very separate. It was an all-black world. Um, you know, I can't recall. I had one white piano teacher when I was around eight or nine, <laughs> but besides that, I don't recall speaking to a white person outside of a store until I entered college. Um, and there were disadvantages to that, of course, but there were advantages to that. Mm. And the advantage was that since the schools were separate and all black, you know, white people didn't realize it, but the teachers were very subversive. The teachers were very consciously and outwardly would train us in the classroom, you're going to go out into the white world. And so you need to be smarter. You need to be better. And so they were just very out front about that. I remember seventh grade, for some reason, they decided to put all the kids who had scored highest on IQ tests into one classroom. And we did all our classes together. It was the most exciting year because we were just so eager to learn. And we had a great teacher. And so that, you know, we, we got a real sense of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so growing up in an all-black environment, um, I developed a strong sense of self without having to deal with the white world yet. Right. And so when I, was, when I had to deal with the white world, well, I was ready. You know, you know smarter than I am, and I'm going to prove it to you. Right. Um, and so it was, you know, it was a very uh, rich upbringing. Um, in, 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 in all those senses, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of pain involved in terms of the segregation and, and, mm-hmm. and the kind of psychological terrorism the white world represented. Um, so I still have scars from that, you know, mm-hmm. no question about it. I mean, so much of my writing comes out of my, right. come, comes out of uh, my childhood, right. those years. Wow. That's fascinating. The, um, the juxtaposition between the humiliation and the terror of dealing with the white world peripherally, and at the same time, the development of your self-worth and your inner self 
yeah. by by school professor, you know, teachers yeah. helping you yeah. along. Yeah, the, but but the other example in that was resistance. Mm -hmm. It's like we were my uh, my 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 grandparents, my uh, my maternal grandmother lived in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and so we would spend time down there every summer. And my parents were very clear. They in the stores there were white and colored water fountains. White water fountains were, you know, the height they should be, and they were always clean. Next to it was a colored water fountain. It was much lower. You had to really lower yourself, and it was always filthy. <laughs> my parents were very clear. You will die on the floor of thirst <laughs> before you drink out of one of those water fountains. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Very clear. Right. We will walk. We will not sit in the back of the bus. Wow. My father would go to a filling station to get gas. And um, in those days, white men would call black men boy. Mm-hmm. We'd drive him to the filling station, and if the man came out and he said, uh, what do you want, boy? My father would say, not a damn thing, Sam, and drive off. Mm -hmm. um, so the example of my parents right. in terms of we do not cooperate with the system. And so therefore, I didn't go to the movies, white movie theaters. You had to go in the back door and then go up in the balcony and what have you. I didn't go to movies. Yeah. I didn't go to white movie theaters. So there was that side of it also sure. of, you know, Lester's do not cooperate with the system to the extent that we can. Wow. Because my father didn't work in the white world, then we didn't have to interact with it that much. That makes sense. Uh, I wanted to talk about Love Song. I really enjoyed reading that again. Um, it was published 26 years ago. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you wow. back then. That's what's yes. kind of crazy too. Uh, wow. So you speak of your early radical life in the civil rights movement and your desire to become Jewish, your longing for that and how that unfolded for you. But 26 years is a long time. And long time. I, um, I was sort of wondering if you were to write a memoir now, you know, how those themes, how, how you've grown both as a Jewish person, as an elder, a retired person now, how, how that is all emerging? Huh. Well, hmm. um, I'm, not, I'm not quite certain how to answer that. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, I'm not as involved in the Jewish community as I used to be. Um, as you mentioned, I spent... Uh, about 13 years oh. being lay leader of the synagogue in St. Johnsbury, Vermont. Um, and I love that, you know. I mean, I really, I really liked having a community to lead and doing my own high holiday services and, you know, mm -hmm. this, that, and the other. Um, but, you know, I, I, I've reached a point in general where I don't have and don't want a public life anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I spent much of my adult life appearing in public, you know, teaching, lecturing, been around the country, you know, leading services and what have you. And so I've, you know, I'm a monk at heart. I'm a solitary at heart. I really, really am. And I, I, was, I was given this life of being in public and I, I enjoyed it and I have no regrets about it. But now I get to lead the life that I want to have. Mm -hmm. And so that, um, 
so that I, you know, we keep a kosher home. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I love about Judaism is that Judaism, you don't have to go to synagogue to be a Jew. And I always loved that about Judaism, right. you know. And so that, you know, uh, if you if you come to our home, you know it's Jewish from the from the mezuzah on the door, and from our kitchen, you know, and what have you. And yeah. so I'm still very much Jewish, but I'm not involved in in actively in the Jewish community anymore. You know, I I, I did that for a lot. Yeah. Um, and I don't need to do that anymore. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing in life now is learning how to be old. Mm-hmm. That's a very new and interesting process. Um, I'm finding there are more changes in life as you get older than there were when you were younger. Because the changes then you could plot, they were, mm-hmm. they were outside of yourself, making your way in the world, you know. But, yeah. you know. Age 75, you know, and all right, you know, to have 10 years left, how much time do I have left? Want to get so much done, don't have the energy I used to have, you know, can't stay awake the way I used to could. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so learning what aging, the aging process is, is just just very, very interesting, you know, and and then, you know, another aspect is I've I've kept a journal since I was uh, 17. Um, not every day or any kind of thing, but it, 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 it covers certainly the main parts of my life. Um, and so I've been going back through my journals and editing my journals um, and taking out stuff that I don't want my kids, my kids don't need to know, <laughs> shouldn't know, you know, nobody's business but mine, what have you. But, you know, editing my journals and right. going through them. And so that's been very, very interesting to really, um, you know, you live your life but, you know, then to look back and get a sense of what your life has been mm-hmm. and what you've been through and the changes and how many things you've forgotten and the people you've forgotten and this, that, and the other. And so that's just, that's been taking up a lot of, that's mainly what I've been focused on, wow. you know, past few years is just, just going back through my life and learning who I was and learning yeah. more about who I am. Okay, well, that's a good segue for my next question. This is a quote from Love Song that moved me quite a lot and it's a little bit long so bear with me here it starts out mind conspired with body is this ringing a bell no mind conspired with body to make me believe i was a revolutionary soul knew otherwise it asked me why i was playing revolutionary i didn't know nor did i know what else to do and then you go on to say None of us would be free until we learned to love, until we stopped seeking to create the world in our own images, that we should cry when another cries, whether that person was in the same room or on the other side of the world. But I was afraid to speak those truths because they seemed alien and irrelevant to almost everyone I knew. So, it, you know, you're talking about reflecting on your, your life. And when I read that, I was thinking about, you know, the scene of it was so dangerous, so precarious, so much anger. And it was like a war in some ways on the outside. And there needed to be such courage and such, you know, sort of a sense of will to, to be there. And to have that inner turmoil at the same time, it must have been very difficult. 
It was. It was. You're referring to the 60s? Is that yeah. what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, there's this, there's this, I guess, a tension between collective identity and personal identity or soul identity. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the old blues, got one mind for the captain of the sea, got another mind for, another mind for what I know is me. Mm. And I think we all experience that in some ways. Mm-hmm. We all have masks we wear when we go to work or, you know, social situations. And especially in a work situation, you know, you're, you hate your job or what have you. And then there's this part of you that the job um, doesn't know about. People at work don't know about what have you. And, and so, you know, when you're, when you're doing this in public, you know, as, 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 as I was for periods of that, and on the one hand, yeah, I'm talking, you know, revolution and what have you, but inside myself I have all kinds of questions about mm-hmm. violent revolution and uh, know that, uh, I always used to say that the revolution came, I'd be one of the first people they'd shoot. You know, revolutionaries would shoot because I simply would not conform. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't go along with the party line, that's not me. Um, and so, yeah, there was, you know, I guess some would consider it to be a contradiction, but I just see it, there was a tension between I was trying to be or to fit a role and to be somebody, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't. It, it, it's like, okay, my first book was Look Out Whitey, Black Power's Gonna Get Your Mama, right? And so I would go to a black college or go to a college to speak, and I could see the disappointment in people's faces when I showed up. Didn't have a 10-foot hall, 10-foot high afro, was, right. wasn't wearing a dashiki, you know, this, that, and the other. <laughs> I was me, you know, just about like I am now. Yeah. And I could, I could see the disappointment <laughs> on their faces, you know. I was supposed to be six foot six, right. you know. And, uh, and then when I got to speak, you know, I spoke very quietly. I was funny, you know, and I was courteous and nice to white people. Mm-hmm. This did not fit anybody's intimate image of who I was because of what I wrote. Well, you know, I wasn't, I was writing from here. I was trying to speak for, you know, give a general mood of what was going on in black America, but that wasn't me. This is why I say you don't fit into a box. You know, people expect something. Yeah. And it's not who you are. I know. (laughs) I know. I, I, I really, I really hate people who project. Mm-hmm. Who project? Who you know project things onto me that's not me? You know I you know wait and learn who I am. Mm-hmm. Don't assume you know who I am from what I write. Right. So do you feel that these parts of you, your mind and your soul, do you feel that they're in alignment now? Oh yeah. Oh mm-hmm. very very much so. Yeah 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 yeah. I. Um, after writing Look Out Whitey, and um, I did a book called um, Revolutionary Notes, which was a collection of pieces I'd done for various left-wing publications in the 60s, I finally did a book called Search for the New Land. My fifth book came out in 69. Hmm. And Search for the New Land was where I brought the two together. I knew that I had to do that, and I had to do it publicly. And so in Search for the New Land, you know, publicly, I brought the two together. Um, and so since then, yeah, been fine. Wow. Yeah. So, um, could you tell us the story of your Jewish ancestors? 
my, um, when I was, I, I mentioned before that um, we would visit my maternal great-grandmother in Pine Bluff, Arkansas in the summers. My great-grandmother, my grandmother, my grandmother, Emma Smith was her name, um, was her married name. My grandmother lived with her brother, Rudolf Altschul, was his name. And they were both very, very light-skinned, and they really could have passed for white. I had a confusion growing up. I remember asking my third grade teacher what white people looked like, because my mother was very light-skinned, and then I had these, uh, these relatives who looked like whites. I was just totally confused when they would talk about white people. Who the hell are white people? And so I had to ask <laughs> my third grade teacher that question. <laughs> um, and so that on my grandmother's mailbox was written the word Altschul. And so my grandmother's name was Smith. Altschul. Who's Altschul? And so I asked my parents one day, you know, and, and then one day in downtown Pine Bluff, I saw on a store window the same name, Altschul. Mm -hmm. And so I asked my parents, that's, I said, that's the name on grandmama's mailbox. And my father said, those are your relatives. You have, your great-grandfather was Jewish. Hmm. And this was like, boom. And my response, you know, I'm seven years old, but my response was, well, if my great-grandfather was Jewish, what's my relationship to that? Mm -hmm. um, his name was Adolf Altschul. He immigrated from uh, Bavaria with his brother and his father uh, in the 1850s. Um, he was a drummer in the Confederate Army, Confederate <laughs> Army, Confederate Army Band. Um, and somehow he met this freed slave woman named Maggie Carson. Maggie Carson was very, very light-skinned. She could have passed for white. And uh, they couldn't legally marry in those times. Don't know when they met, uh, how they met. But um, they got together, and they ended up having six children, hmm. one of whom was, my, was Emma Smith, my grandmother, and my great-uncle, Uncle Rudolph. Um, and I've been doing some genealogical, genealogical uh, research and I found in the census records, I guess it was census records for 1880, and in the census record, there's this neighborhood, and on the census records in those days, you know, they put race. And so on the census records, in this one neighborhood, there are all these black people, and there's one white person, Adolf Altschul, my great-grandfather, huh. was living among all these black people in 1880. Wow. Yeah. Um, and he died about 1901, 1903. My mother remembered him. Hmm. Um, and when her father died, she remembered that he came and got all of them and moved them into his house in town. Wow. His, his relatives, all, all except for his sister, <coughs> excuse me, uh, all of his sister disowned him. Yeah. Um, for being with this quote-unquote black woman, this freed slave woman. Um, and then in 19, about 1990, I guess I was, I had a speaking engagement in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Little Rock is close to Pine Bluff. So I went to Pine Bluff because I wanted to find his grave. 
Uh, my great-grandmother is buried on the property in uh, Pine Bluff, um, the family property. But the story is, is that when he died, my great-grandmother sent word to town because she knew that he wanted to be buried in the Jewish cemetery. Mm -hmm. And so they came out and got him and buried in the Jewish cemetery. So I went looking for the Jewish cemetery. Could not find it. And so finally I saw a monument shop, you know, a tombstone shop across from a cemetery. And so I went in there and I said, where's, where, I'm trying to find the Jewish cemetery. What? There's a Jewish cemetery. I don't know. And I said, all right, I'm in the south. I said, where are the Jews buried at? Oh! <laughs> and he pointed across the street. He said, they're behind the Christian cemetery. <laughs> okay, fine. So I went over there. And it rained a lot in Pine Bluff. So the cemetery was literally just standing in water. Hmm. And I uh, was walking around the Jewish cemetery, looking at the tombstones. And I stopped in front of, I stopped. And literally, Marcy, hands reached out, grabbed my shoulders, spun me around, and there at my feet was my great-grandfather's tombstone. Wow. Literally, that's what happened. There he was. And what's really odd is I looked down and I said, I came back. Mm. I came back. Yeah. I have no word. I have no idea what I meant. I have no idea what I said. Yeah. But that's but but that was the experience. And so then I found his father's, my great great grandfather's tombstone, you know. Uh, which Samuel. Was few, uh, Samuel. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a few rows down. Um, Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I don't have a picture of him. I wish I knew, you know, much more yeah. about him and this, that, and the other. But, uh, but that was my great, that was my great grandfather, and certainly, my feeling that I wanted to integrate him into my life since he was part of my ancestry. Mm -hmm. Ended up never thought I'd, you know, become Jewish, but right. that's where it ended up. That's wonderful. Interestingly enough, we're slightly coming to the end of this first segment. Um, our time has just flown by. Uh, so I don't really want to get into the next topic, although this is sort of a segue into the next topic. Um, so maybe we'll just close, close for now, and sure. hopefully you all will join us for our second our second, second part of this, of this show. Thank you.